explore us. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. We're back with part two of our exploration of the life and times of Elizabeth Keckley and Harriet Tubman. Last time we heard from our daring heroines, Lizzie had just purchased freedom for herself and her son. But let's back up a bit and start with the decade leading up to that purchase. While Lizzie's hustling hard as a dressmaker in St. Louis, Harriet Tubman is back on the East Coast, and she's also working on securing freedom. But not for herself, and not with dollars. Oh no. She promised herself she'd find a way to free her family, and she's not one to sit around and wait for opportunity. She's already found her own path to freedom, and she's pretty sure she can do it again. Grab a warm coat, a steely nerve, some pinking shears, and a healthy dose of courage. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My pirate queens, Edie, Emily, and Jessica. And my lady presidents, Amy, Brendan, Lindsay, Avery, Elizabeth, Claire, Caitlin, Mary, Courtney, Lauren, Eve, Jackie, Caroline, Karen, Kat, Louisa, Nancy, Paul, and Walter. Between 1850, just a year after escaping slavery herself, and 1861, Harriet returns to the South some dozen times to liberate family members, and some other people too, while she's at it. All in all, she rescues around 70 people from slavery, and in all that time, she never gets caught. Oh, damn. Let's put the outrageous daring of these trips into perspective, shall we? Remember that fugitive slave law from 1850 that said that Northerners can't shelter runaways, that they even have to help in capturing escaped slaves if asked to? Case in point, in 1849, a bunch of slave hunters raid a popular boarding house in Washington, D.C. and arrest a waiter in the middle of the dinner service. It must have made quite the impression on Illinois congressman at the time, Abraham Lincoln, who was there to watch helplessly as the man was dragged back into bondage halfway through his evening steak. This law is supposed to be a compromise to appease Southerners, something to stave off talk of civil war. But instead, it's made many Northerners angry. Even people who aren't abolitionists don't like it. They don't think it's right that the government should force them to aid and abet in the slave trade. As one Columbus newspaper put it, Now we are all slave catchers. For those who oppose slavery, it's a slap in the face of their personal liberty. And one Yankee ship captain barred from docking in southern ports because of rumors that he's an abolitionist isn't afraid to shout it from the rafters. This so-called fugitive slave law is the most disgraceful, atrocious, unjust, detestable, heathenish, barbarous, diabolical, tyrannical, man-degrading, woman-murdering, demon-bleasing, heaven-defying act ever perpetrated in any age of the world. For African Americans, it has immediate and truly dire consequences. Being a black person anywhere in America, free or not, is a very dangerous thing to be. 
In the first 15 months of the law, some 84 fugitives are shipped back to their masters. Woe to the poor panting fugitive, wrote a very frustrated Frederick Douglass. Woe to all that dare be his friends. Many are leaving the U.S. for the friendlier hills of Canada because they no longer feel safe, even in the North. But Harriet Tubman isn't running. Instead, she's marching in the opposite direction, back into the South, right into the flaming arms of danger. She's about to become a key conductor on the Underground Railroad, one of the only ones that is formerly enslaved and one of the only women. This is what she's famous for. This is what makes Harriet a legend. But her first trip she does all on her own, without support from anyone. In 1850, she hears that her niece, Keziah Bowley, along with her daughter and young son, are being put up for sale back home in Cambridge, Maryland. Keep in mind, these sales tend to be a very public spectacle. Most of the town turns up to watch an auction, because sometimes history's gross like that. During it, Keziah's husband John puts in the highest bid for his wife and children, $500, and he's told to stand aside while the auctioneer takes lunch. But when they check into his finances, they find out he's no good for the money. So they decide to start again. Only serious bids this time, please. But by then, John and his family have already stolen away. They hide in a barn until nightfall, then row through the night up the Choptank River for Baltimore, and to Harriet, who helped hatch the plan for their great escape. Baltimore is a good city for a runaway, as it has a huge free black population that the bullies can blend in among. But that doesn't mean it's a safe city. It's still very much in the South. Harriet guides them through the treacherous streets somehow and on to Philadelphia. Again, this is just one year after Harriet's own escape, and Southerners are only becoming more vigilant about hunting down runaways. Every step into the South is filled with real and present danger. But now that she's done it once, Harriet knows that she can do it again. I got in a By the spring of 1851, she's headed back down south to rescue her brother James Isaac, and also a few other men who need her help. Later that same year, she goes down again, this time for her husband, John Tubman. Even though, let's remember, he's a free man and can come north to her anytime he pleases. But Harriet's not about to let that giant red flag stop her. This is their chance to be together, finally, and she's going to seize it. As she approaches Cambridge, she sends a message out to John through the grapevine, telling him to come and meet her. He says he won't, though, because, wait for it, he's gotten remarried. Apparently, he refuses to even go and tell Harriet to her face. Way to be super stab-worthy, John. Loyal to the bone, family-focused Harriet is heartbroken. The future she envisioned is gone now, but then, perhaps this is what God has always intended for her. She realizes that perhaps these missions is what he's been calling her to do all along. The Lord told me to do this. I said, oh Lord, I can't. Don't ask me, take somebody else. But she can't ignore what he's asking. I feel that his time is growing near. He gave me my strength, and he set the North Star in the heavens. He meant I should be free. And he meant for her to free others. She's sure of it. So she leaves John behind, letting him drop out of her heart. 
But she isn't about to let this be a wasted journey. She rounds up 11 people, some family, some strangers, and guides them all the way to Canada. Her career as a UGRR conductor has begun in earnest. Harriet establishes a pattern for these journeys. During the summer, she saves up money from domestic work in Philly and accepts financial support from friends and abolitionists. She waits to make her way south until the weather turns cold. The long nights of winter are best for clandestine travel. She typically returns to Maryland, where her family is, and where her childhood gives her a good sense of how to navigate the woods and waterways. She usually meets up with fugitives away from their plantations, making it less likely they'll be recognized as they start to move. Sometimes she makes the meeting place a graveyard, where they'll look like a group of mourners rather than a group of people ready to run. She tends to set out for the north on a Saturday, knowing that owners won't be able to put a notice in the paper until Monday, giving her a little more time. But there are always slave catchers around, and plenty of local posses looking to cash in. She mostly travels by foot, relying on a network of free people of color, friendly Quakers, and UGRR safe houses as she winds her way north. Knowing who to trust is often the difference between life and death for a conductor, and her instinct never leads her astray. She's also one of the first conductors to actively use the actual railway. She often actually takes the train down south, which seems kind of crazy, but really, what black woman in her right mind would take a train even deeper into a slave state? No one, which makes it genius. She sticks to back roads and little-known byways, hiding if she suspects danger is near. She uses hymns and songs to help guide her fugitives, using them as a kind of code. There is one for when a group gets separated, another for when there's a threat lurking near. When she can, she pays for transport, clothing, and food for her passengers. When she doesn't have money to offer, she gives what she has. Once, she pays for food by offering up her underclothes. Cast off undies, anyone? She spends every cent she ever makes or is given on others. And she isn't afraid of extreme discomfort, going hungry or cold, without sleep or shelter. She's an incredibly convincing actress. She can make herself seem young or old, strong or weak, smart or senseless. As a friend wrote of her, she seems to have command over her face and can banish all expression from her features and looks so stupid that nobody would suspect her of knowing enough to be dangerous. She dresses up in costume, sometimes as an old woman, sometimes as a male farmhand. Ah, that old chestnut works every time. She even carries a book with her, though she isn't able to read it, to deflect unwanted attention and hide her face from passers-by. And she needs to hide her face, because she isn't going around to just any southern plantations. She's going back to her hometown, where people will know her on sight. It must take nerves of steel, a will of iron, and a reckless spirit to pull this off. Once, she even sees her old owner on the streets in Cambridge. Good thing our gal Harriet's cool in a crisis. She tugs on the legs of the chickens she's carrying, inducing them to run around like crazy so she can put her head down and tend to them by way of distraction. And she continues on her merry way. What? But the more trips she makes, the more famous she becomes. And yet in all these trips, all these times, Harriet never gets caught. Ever. 
I was the conductor of the Underground Railroad for eight years. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. She's right. That's something most conductors can't say. Many are caught eventually, and run the risk of being fined, thrown in jail, even hanged. One sea captain caught in the South with escaping slaves in the hold of his ship was branded with the letters SS, Slave Stealer. He probably liked that one less than the one in his other arm of a sexy mermaid. So how does she do it? Particularly when, according to both friends and haters, she isn't nearly as knowledgeable or suave as some of the other conductors. A colleague called her, Unlettered. No reference of geography. Asleep half the time. Jealous much? Abolitionist William Still showed he really knew how to flatter the ladies when he said of her, Indeed. A more ordinary specimen of humanity could hardly be found among the most unfortunate-looking farmhands of the South. And yet he also said, In point of courage, shrewdness, and disinterested exertions to rescue her fellow man, she was without her equal. One of the secrets to her success is her complete faith in a higher power. She feels like God is speaking directly to her when she falls into her catatonic, trance-like spells, which she often does while out on these missions, going comatose for hours at a time. It probably terrifies her passengers, but not Harriet. She feels the Lord is guiding every move she makes. I never met with any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul, said abolitionist and Harriet fan Thomas Garrett. And her faith in a supreme power truly was great. Her intuition becomes legendary. She'll turn left for no reason, only to discover later that she managed to navigate around some slave catchers. When she gets stuck, she prays, and help always seems to come. This intuition and faith seem to make her fearless. And in a time when spiritualism is rampant, this talent strikes awe and deep respect into many hearts. But she can't always be winging it and trusting in divine inspiration. Harriet, it turns out, is an excellent planner, making contacts where she needs them, but staying flexible in case the situation changes. And she isn't afraid to be hard. She insists on drugging babies with paragoric, a tincture of opium, to keep them quiet along the journey. One time, when she's forced to keep a group in the swamp for a day and night without food to avoid slave catchers, one of her passengers gets scared and says he wants to turn back. But she can't risk him going back and giving his old master any intel. So she calmly pulls out the gun she always carries and tells him, Move or die. You best believe he moves, and quickly. And let's not forget, she's a woman of color. Southern slave owners are always on the lookout for conductors, of course, but it's a man they look for. A man who's strong, hard, and smart enough to pull off such a thing. So, usually a white man. They're never looking for a five-foot-tall, illiterate black woman with an armful of chickens. But the truth is that women are always involved with the UGRR. Housing, feeding, and nursing runaways at every stop in their journey. But the South's inability to take a woman seriously as a conductor becomes one of Harriet's most valuable tools. Though Harriet is considered rough of speech and manner, her daring and commitment impress all the bright lights of the abolition movement. 
She even gets a nickname, Moses. She makes perhaps her most famous trip on Christmas Eve, 1854, when she makes her way through the rain to her parents' cabin. That's where she's instructed her brothers, Henry, Ben, and Robert, to meet her. The family is always allowed to meet there at Christmas time, making it the perfect time to steal away. But Henry is late because he has a problem. He doesn't want to leave his pregnant wife behind. He sits beside her as she goes into labor, trying to decide what to do, stay or go. She begs him to stay, to not forget her and the children. But in the end, he has to go. He's heard rumors that he's about to be sold. It's leave by choice and find freedom, or by force and stay enslaved. They hide in the family's corn crib, staring out between the wooden slats and waiting for the rain to stop. Harriet hasn't seen her mother Rit or father Ben for years, but she's too afraid to tell them of her presence. If they're questioned later, she doesn't want them to have to lie. But her father finds out, so Harriet has someone blindfold him so that he can come and give his children a hug before they go. Ben walks them part of their way down the path, unable to see them, then listens to them leave him. Eventually, she will go on a trip to free her elderly parents. But imagine the fierce sadness of this night the family spent together. Imagine the love, hurt, and loss. Harriet makes her way to her abolitionist friend William Still's house in Philly. He writes, Moses arrives with six passengers. Great fears were entertained for her safety, but she seemed wholly devoid of personal fear. Harriet brings her brothers to Canada, deemed the only safe place for them now. I wouldn't trust Uncle Sam with my people no longer, but I brought them clear off to Canada. She spends months there with her family, building a community in this new, frigid place, before turning around and repeating the process. Meanwhile, the public debate about slavery is only getting more intense, straying from words and laws to acts of violence. The Civil War may not have started, but there's already a war going on between North and South. Take the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. It lets the people of Kansas and Nebraska decide whether or not to allow slavery within their borders, a state of play called popular sovereignty, though the law is far from popular. It essentially wipes out the long-standing Missouri Compromise that drew a line in the American sands, making slavery a southern thing, freedom a northern one, proposing instead that each state should make up its own mind on the slavery issue. Violence erupts in Kansas with free soilers, people who oppose the spread of slavery, fighting against those who are pro in a period of violence that comes to be known as Bleeding Kansas. We're talking looting, fires, murder, and one of the most explosive fighters of them all is an abolitionist named John Brown. You may have heard of him. He's the guy responsible for the raid on Harper's Ferry, Virginia in 1859, an ill-fated attempt to incite the enslaved in that area to start a riot and take the town back from their masters. This guy is, to put it lightly, intense. A lot of people, Frederick Douglass amongst them, also think he's kinda crazy, but he and Harriet Tubman become friends. He even calls her General Tubman. She actually helps raise money and support for his uprising, though luckily she doesn't go herself. That would have been quite the blow to history. Like her, he's deeply religious and uncompromising in the extreme. But he's also not the best of planners, and his raid ends with his own execution. 
In his last testament, he wrote prophetically, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the cries of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. Harriet is devastated by his death, which helps fan the flames of war. When I think how he gave up his life for our people, and how he never flinched, but was so brave to the end, it's clear to me it wasn't mortal man. It was God in him. He also helps to militarize Harriet's thinking, to see that perhaps this war can't be won by freeing one soul at a time and taking them to another, freer country. Perhaps it's time to turn around and stand her ground. And so it is that, in 1860, she makes her first public rescue. A man named Charles Null, who escaped from slavery in Virginia, has been living in Troy, New York for years when he is apprehended by a slave catcher. That slave catcher, rather horribly, is his own brother, a free man who's been paid to do this dirty work. Charles is being held in a courtroom at the Mutual Bank building while his fate is being decided, but everyone knows what that decision will be. There's a crowd of anti-slavery supporters outside the courthouse, all shouting, but most observers are barred from entering the courtroom, but not Harriet. She's wrapped herself in a shawl, all stooped over, and though she's only in her 30s, she's managed to completely transform herself into an old, harmless scrubwoman. Her disguises put most of our lady spies to shame. She waits at the back of the room as Charles is sentenced to being shipped back to Virginia. He tries to jump out a window, panicked, but is held back by the guards. As he's taken down the aisle, the crowd pushing and jostling, she grabs him and pulls him down some stairs into the crowd. The guards swing at them with clubs, banging and bruising, but Harriet holds firm. She keeps on running. They make their way to the river and across the water on a skiff, but they're apprehended on the other side. No matter, Harriet's cool with a challenge. She rallies her followers, and on her signal, they storm the judge's office. They ram the door, which is quickly wedged open by falling bodies. And this time she grabs Charles and gets him in a wagon. That day, Harriet earns the nickname her friend John Brown gave her, General Tubman. It's her first success leading a raid, but it won't be her last. Let's take a break from fire and brimstone and rejoin Lizzie in Washington, D.C. Break out those hoop skirts and get ready to twirl, because we're about to enter the realm of high fashion. That's where she's headed in the spring of 1860, her son safely packed off to Wilberforce College, ready to embark on a whole new life. She stops in Baltimore for about six weeks, where she tries to start some classes for young women of color to teach them how to sew, but they don't gain much traction. And so, with what little money she has left to her, she heads to the nation's capital, the place where many free people gravitate to look for work. Though slavery won't be banned there until 1862, it's on the decline, and the place has a thriving black population. Some 80% of that population is free. At first, she gets work as a seamstress, working at $2.50 a day. Not bad, compared to what most domestics are making, but Lizzie didn't buy her own freedom to accept the first offer that comes her way. Dressmaking is a respectable profession and a potentially lucrative business, one of the only ones open to women, especially a single one like Lizzie. If she's going to be a dressmaker, then she's going to do it in style. Go big or go home. 
It helps that she's brought a long list of potential clients with her, all referred by the leading ladies back in St. Louis. It's one of these friends of friends who helps her out with getting a license in the city, which the law says she needs if she wants to stay and work. She only has ten days to get it. Never fear, darling, says Mrs. Ringgold. I'm friends with the mayor. He'll fix it all up nice for you. Also, Mrs. Ringgold has a friend who needs a dress for a very important event. It's a ball for Albert, Prince of Wales. You know, the heir to the English throne. The friend in question is Mary Lee, the wife of General Robert E. Lee, who will go on to become the Confederates' favorite general. But right now, she's a prime potential client and she's rolling in money. So, yes please. Mrs. Lee provides the fabric, but Lizzie has such good taste. Here's $100. Won't she go and pick out the trimmings herself? Yes, you heard that right, $100 for trimmings. And when she goes to the store and buys those trimmings, she gets a $25 commission from the store just for bringing in the business. Now that's a whole lot more in one hour than that $2.50 a week. Here's the thing to know about going to a dressmaker, or a mantua maker, or a modiste at this time. This isn't an off-the-rack experience. Ready-to-wear won't pick up steam until the 1880s, and while there are commercial dress patterns in the 1850s, those with more refined tastes don't want a dress to look like anyone else's. This process is a collaboration between dressmaker and dress wearer, who together come up with a design that will suit the wearer's needs. The client typically buys the fabrics, and then the dressmaker creates a sample dress out of cheap materials so that she can get a sense of what the final dress will be, and to make sure it'll fit like a glove. Sometimes the client is the chief designer, but often it's the mantua maker who dreams up the look. Mrs. Lee's dress is an instant hit, a walking advertisement for Lizzie's skill that soon brings a flood of ladies to her blooming business. This savvy, ambitious businesswoman picks out a shop next to a popular hairdresser, gets business cards made and a sign hung up, and gets right down to making a name for herself. Lizzie is an incredible seamstress, but she's also a master at networking. Her poise, elegance, and refinement quickly make her a well-loved fixture of fashionable ladies. Her dresses are always sophisticated and streamlined, elegant and very refined, just like her. As she grows more prosperous, she hires seamstresses to help out with construction. At one point, she has 20 women under her employ. Who runs the world? Lizzie. But in the beginning, she does everything herself, from design and fittings to draping, cutting, and assembly, both with a sewing machine and by hand for the detail work. Keep in mind that sewing machines are around at this point and becoming more popular, and mass production is becoming a thing. But that only makes a good mantua maker that much more valuable in a city like Washington, where looks truly matter. They're the ones with the skills to interpret the fashion plates from Paris into something that will both fit and flatter. Those wanting a dress to impress need a woman like Lizzie. For Lizzie's clients, the wives of ambitious judges and senators who expect them to throw parties at which opportunities will either be seized or missed, looking good is one of their most important jobs. Most of her clients are Southern ladies. Let's ponder this reality for a second. This woman, who has spent most of her life being told she'll never amount to anything, is now dominating the capital's fashion scene, 
with southern slave-owning ladies all vying for her business and her attention. They wait on her. Yes! Stately carriages stand before her door, one newspaper wrote of her, whose haughty owners sit before Lizzie docile as lambs while she tells them what to wear. She may not be a conductor on the Underground Railroad, but this is a whole other kind of triumph. Imagine the kind of hard work and drive this upward swing would demand of Lizzie. Imagine her ambition, her utter belief in herself. Her dresses pop up all around town, like walking billboards, inspiring the city's most fashionable to seek out the woman who made stout Mrs. So-and-so into such a Marilyn. It makes sense that so many are Southern, given that many of her contacts are from St. Louis, but you do have to wonder if it bothers her that most of them own slaves. You might also wonder if some of these clients might not like having an African-American woman make their dresses, but that doesn't seem to be the case. There are some 250 black dressmakers in the city, all vying to break in with the elite clientele. Still, Lizzie must hear some very strange and cringeworthy gossip as she measures those hips. One of those pairs of hips belongs to the young and popular Verena Davis, wife of Southern politician Jefferson Davis. Yes, the one that will, one day quite soon, become the president of the Confederacy. Lizzie makes several dresses for Verena in 1860, the year before the war begins, becoming so indispensable that she sometimes goes over to the Jefferson house on the daily. This client is a huge coup for Lizzie, and she goes all out to make a good impression. I saw that Miss D was anxious to have it completed, so I volunteered to remain and work on it. Wearily, the hours dragged on, but there was no rest for my busy fingers. And then, ready? War starts to become more certain, and many Southern politicians pack up and start to head home. Before Verena does, however, she tries to convince Lizzie to come with them. When the fighting starts, she says, the city won't be a safe place for Lizzie. Besides, it'll all be over in a month or two, and then she can resume her business. Besides, Jeff's bound to end up president someday, so Lizzie can come and work in the White House. That's what she wants, isn't it? Knowing what we know in our century, it seems crazy that Lizzie would ever even consider it. But for a hot minute, she does, because she really wants to work in the White House. She's had her eye on that particular prize all this time. But in the end, she declines to climb aboard the whole secession train. Shocker! But still, a whole flock of her Southern clients are deserting Washington. They're outraged about this new president-elect, the rough-cut Western Republican named Abraham Lincoln. But in his wife, Lizzie sees an opportunity, and she's about to make her move. One day, a client named Mrs. McLean busts into Lizzie's shop and says, Lizzie, I am invited to dine at Willard's on the next Sunday, and positively I have not a dress fit to wear. You must commence work on it right away. Lizzie tells her that she's got several others in the queue right now and can't possibly, but Mrs. McLean pulls out a very enticing carrot. I know Mrs. Lincoln well, and you shall make a dress for her provided you finish mine in time to wear to dinner. Alrighty then. And so it is that Lizzie finds herself at the White House for an official interview with Mary Todd Lincoln. 
Apparently, some idiot spilled something down the front of the dress the first lady was planning to wear to a special function in about a week's time, and she needs a dressmaker to step in right quick and make her something fabulous. But Lizzie's got competition. Several other ladies have introduced their dressmakers. Lizzie stays calm and stands her ground. When asked into the room, she finds a woman of about 40, somewhat stout and very short, but regal just the same. During the interview, Mary Lincoln asks Lizzie who she's worked for. Lizzie makes sure to drop Mrs. Davis's name. Mrs. Davis, Mary exclaims. So far, good. Can you do my work? Yes, Miss Lincoln. Will you have much for me to do? That, Mrs. Keckley, will depend altogether upon your prices. Though Mary Lincoln is, as Lizzie herself will later admit, penny-wise and pound-foolish, in turns both cheap and a little too addicted to the retail therapy, at this point she drives a hard bargain. She's just a poor Western gal who can't afford to be extravagant, but has every reason to want a dress to impress. If you will work cheap, you shall have plenty to do. And so Lizzie gets to work making a rose-colored gown for one of Mary's first official parties. Lizzie doesn't have a lot of time to begin with, and the picky Mary keeps changing her mind about what it is she wants. Lizzie works day and night, sewing up until the 11th hour. When she finally gets the dress to Mary's dressing room, Lizzie finds the great lady in a wild state of distress. Mary is, to put it mildly, a lot of drama. She can be passionate, excitable, and vengeful, attributes that will lead many Washingtonians to hate her with the passion of a thousand sons. But Lizzie is impressed with Mary from the beginning. No queen, accustomed to the usages of royalty all her life, could have comported herself with more calmness and dignity than did the wife of the president. She was confident and self-possessed, and confidence always gives grace. In this moment, Grace is in short supply. Mary's under a lot of pressure and doesn't appreciate having to wait anxiously for Lizzie in her bathrobe. At first, she refuses to even put the dress on, telling Lizzie, You've bitterly disappointed me. But Mary's friends convince her to stop being a diva. And then in sweeps Abe Lincoln to smooth the ruffled feathers. I declare, you look charming in that dress. Miss Keckley has met with great success. And so begins one of the most influential of Lizzie's relationships, both professional and personal. This woman who spent more than half her life in slavery is now the number one modiste of the First Lady of the United States. Mary commissions 16 more dresses to be made for this important social season. But being the First Lady's dressmaker is not a job for the faint of heart. Mary is keen to be taken seriously in Washington, where many are writing her off as a country bumpkin without taste or class. From day one, as one Washingtonian wrote, The womankind are giving Mrs. Lincoln the cold shoulder. She wants to be like the French Empress Eugenie, always fashionable, always on the cutting edge. She's the closest thing America has to royalty, she reasons, and she wants Lizzie to help her fill that role. And remember, Lizzie's having to work with a lot of material, enough to go over the era's fashionable crinoline, but also create bodices that trim her waist and create the hourglass shape that's so very a la mode. This is one of Lizzie's particular specialties. Several of the leading ladies of Washington society were extremely jealous of her superior attractions. 
You know it. But Mary's desire to look like a hot young thing doesn't always do her favors. Mary's dress sense is to Lizzie's dress sense, as Britney Spears is to Audrey Hepburn's. She favors daringly plunging necklines, short sleeves, a garish new color, magenta, oh my, and flowers in her hair. Some say not the most age-appropriate choices. One night, when Abe catches sight of Mary's satin dress, all bare arms and a whole lot of cleavage, he remarks, Whew! Our cat has a long tail tonight. It is my opinion that if some of that tail was nearer the head, it would be in better style. But Lizzie thinks Mary looks great, if she says so herself. As time goes on, Lizzie becomes much more to Mary than the First Lady's dressmaker. In this time of toil and trouble, she becomes her hairdresser, her child helper, her confidant. And that's how, at the dawn of the Civil War, Elizabeth Keckley finds herself in the Union's seat of power. Meanwhile, Harriet's gotten pretty famous. The South has tightened its belt, putting together stiffer fines for anyone found guilty of aiding fugitives. They've also put a huge reward on Harriet's head, hoping to entice someone to betray her. These range from $12,000 to $40,000, though that last is more likely the sum total of all the rewards ever offered for her capture. Regardless, things have gotten very hot for her in the South, and her friends fear for her safety. But she keeps going on down anyway, up until the fighting begins. Harriet doesn't share Lizzie's confidence in Abe Lincoln. She thinks his views on abolition are way too soft. In the beginning, he's adamant that the war isn't about freeing slaves, but about keeping the country together. He's also one of the many people who think that the best way to liberate enslaved people is to send them back to Mother Africa. But Harriet is not down. She's not African. She's American. They can't do it. We're rooted here, and they can't pull us up. In her opinion, it's time to bring her people out of exile in Canada and back onto home soil. And if violence is the only way to achieve that, well, fine then. But she worries that God won't let Abe Lincoln win this war until he makes it about slavery, freeing her people and arming them to fight. She worries about what might happen to families trapped in the South. And so it is that, in 1861, she informally attaches herself to our old friend Benjamin Beast Butler's division as they pass through Maryland offering her services as freelance cook and nurse. Somebody's calling my name. Yeah. Eventually, she arrives at Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia, which is becoming a major magnet for escaping slaves as the war rages on. The fort is a Union home base, a place where slave catchers can't get them, where perhaps they can be safe and free. By February 1862, the black population there has tripled. But the Union doesn't know what to do with them. An act passed by Congress in August 1861, called the First Confiscation Act, means that any Southern property, including the enslaved, can be taken as contraband. In other words, they become the spoils of war. These so-called contrabands are put to work doing manual labor for the Union, but they aren't paid for their labor. As the Secretary of War said, keep an account of the labor by them performed, of the value of it, and the expenses of their maintenance. The question of their final disposition will be reserved for future determination. In other words, we'll deal with that later. Right. This doesn't look much like liberation. As one critic put it, 
They are slaves, having merely changed masters. As a volunteer, unpaid, of course, she does what she can to help these desperate people, all in need of help and supplies. They're sleeping in wagons on the ground with no one to be their champion. Meanwhile, she's still unimpressed with Abe's stance on abolishing slavery. Suppose there was an awfully big snake down there on the floor, she said. He bites you. He sent for the doctor to cut the bite. But the snake, he coils up there. And while the doctor's doing it, he bites you again. The doctor cuts down that bite. But while he's doing it, the snake springs up and bites you again. And so he keeps doing it till you kill him. That's what Mr. Lincoln ought to know. You tell him, Harriet. After a while, the governor of Massachusetts asks Harriet for a little favor. MBD. Can she go on down to South Carolina and help out with the contrabands there? He'll make sure she's well-funded for the journey. So, of course, she goes. But this is the Deep South, deep into the heart of Confederate territory. Union troops are finding abandoned plantations with hundreds of enslaved people, left without food and provisions, trying to stay alive in a war-torn land. Those who get away from their owners are taken to Hilton Head in Port Royal, near Savannah and Charleston. The heat along the coast is oppressive, disease is rife, and food is ever-growing scarcer. Someone has to look out for their interests, and that's what Harriet aims to do. But at first, these contrabands don't much trust her. The Sea Island people speak Gullah, which Harriet doesn't know, and that doesn't help build any bridges. Also, she seems awfully chummy with the white officers around the place. They even tip their caps when she walks by. They see her taking supplies from the army and resent it, not knowing who she is, for what they see as special treatment. So Harriet turns around and uses those rations to make pies and root beer, which she then sells to soldiers by day to make money. And all that money goes into relief. She makes a point of mixing in with the refugees, living amongst them, something the many northern volunteers around the place don't seem ready to do. If Harriet is one thing, she's never too good, too important, or too famous for anybody. She even starts a laundry house with her own money, where she trains women of color to wash clothes. In a time well before washing machines, this is something they can make their own living doing. She also protects them from the attentions of less scrupulous soldiers. As we discovered in episode 4, there are plenty of these ne'er-do-wells around. Mothers are brutally treated for trying to protect their daughters, said one union doctor in the field. And there are now several women in our little hospital who have been shot by soldiers for resisting their vile demands. As disease becomes a major problem, Harriet uses her knowledge of root medicine and local plants to tend to the sick, both black and white. She's so good at it that she's called to a union outpost in Florida, where many men are dying of dysentery. Somehow, she manages not to get sick. Harriet is nothing if not hardcore. Meanwhile, back at the White House, Lizzie's also nursing and soothing. As one of Mary Lincoln's best friends and closest confidants, she has a front row seat to how the country is changing. People looking to gain an ear with the president, or looking for scandal, come sniffing around, offering her bribes for inside information. Ever the classy lady, she gives them nothing. She spends more and more time up at the White House. Mary also goes out of her way to swing by Elizabeth's shop for her fittings, even though she knows Lizzie will be happy to come to her. 
Lizzie is busy and is known as one of the leading ladies of the city's African-American community. But she's concerned by the nose that community is turning up, the growing number of contrabands flooding into Washington. She watches them come flooding in, tired and panicked, looking for safety and opportunity, and instead finding poverty, uncertainty, and fear. In the beginning, there's no policy as to how to treat and deal with contrabands. There are so many that they're put up in camps, which are often overcrowded and plagued by disease. Some contrabands are paid for growing crops for the army, but many of the refugees feel at a loss. They aren't citizens. They are refugees with few trained skills, no money, scanty choices, and a very uncertain outlook. That's a feeling that both Lizzie and Harriet understand all too well. Instead of flowery path days of perpetual sunshine and bowers hanging with golden fruit, the road was rugged and full of thorns. The sunshine was eclipsed by shadows, and the mute appeals for help too often were answered by cold neglect. The transition from slavery to freedom was too sudden for you. The bright dreams were too rudely dispelled. You were not prepared for the new life that opened before you. And the great masses of the North learned to look upon your helplessness with indifference. Learned to speak of you as an idle, dependent race. She is shocked by how cold her community is being. They think these newcomers are going to bring them down, take jobs, tarnish the good reputation they've worked so hard to build. And Lizzie thinks, Reason should have prompted kinder thoughts. My God in a lion One day, she sees a festival being held for sick soldiers, a yard strung with brilliant lights and filled with music, encouraging attendees to turn out their pockets to help people in need. And she thinks, why can't we also do that for our people? She suggests at a church, and people like the idea. And so the Contraband Relief Association is born, providing jobs and support for those who need it. Within just two weeks, it has 40 members. Lizzie goes around and gives public speeches for the organization. She'll bring the famous Frederick Douglass on board. She'll even broker a meeting between suffragist and abolitionist Sojourner Truth and Abraham Lincoln. She'll also step in to teach black women and girls how to sew so they'll be able to support themselves through the trade. She's elected as the association's president and holds that position for as long as it's running. With powerful friends willing to contribute money, like Mary Lincoln, she's able to step up and do a whole lot of good. But things aren't all good deeds and rose-colored dresses. In 1861, she finds out that her son George has joined the army. How does he do that when African Americans aren't yet eligible to be soldiers? Well, remember his lineage. In appearance, George is so very white that no one questions him, especially when he enlists under a false name, his father's name. Weird move, George. Lizzie can't have loved that. Off George goes to fight for freedom, and he is killed in his very first battle in Missouri. Lizzie has lost her son, her joy. She is devastated. And though she is working in close proximity with the man who will, in a year or so, write a proclamation that frees African Americans, Lizzie must have been frustrated often by the contradictions of her adopted city. She's spending a lot of time with Mary and Abe's young sons, confronted every day by their privilege in a world where her people have so little of it. 
There's a story in her memoir about watching their son Tad doing a pretty poor job of learning how to spell something and being given every excuse about why that might be. Had Tad been a Negro boy, not the son of a president, and so difficult to instruct, he would have been called thick-skulled and would have been held up as an example of the inferiority of race. Overall, Lizzie speaks very fondly of her time with Abe Lincoln. You have to wonder if her presence at his hearth and home has any influence on his thoughts on slavery and race. Lincoln, the movie Daniel Day-Lewis will win an Oscar for in 2013, is certainly excited to suggest the possibility. We don't know, but it's not far-fetched to think she might have, especially given the fact that she's a key caretaker and trusted friend at one of the lowest points of that president's life. In 1862, while Abe and Mary host a party in the White House's reception rooms, their 11-year-old son, Willie, lies sick in bed. Lizzie is there to nurse him, which seems a little strange to me, her acting the part of Mammy, just as her mother Aggie did. No matter why she's there, though, she is very much needed when, weeks later, Willie passes away. Mary and Abe are both so distraught that it's Lizzie who washes and dresses his body, getting it ready for burial. But then, Lizzie understands what it is to lose a son. It's a storm that rocks the White House, and it won't be the last storm Lizzie will weather at the First Lady's side. In January 1863, Harriet is overjoyed when Abe Lincoln publishes the Emancipation Proclamation. But down in Port Royal, South Carolina, the war rages on, and she knows the fight is far from over. She wants to do more than nurse, more than watch from the sidelines. She wants to be General Tubman. Since the war began, there's been a lot of noise from some quarters about arming African Americans to help win the war. After all, in the South, there are a whole lot of them, and they certainly have skin in the game. Why not let them fight for it? But Abe and others aren't so sure it's a good idea. Maybe they won't be capable of training and fighting. And besides, what might it all lead to? The mass murder of Southerners? Equal rights? Horrors! But he has to admit that the number of contrabands is escalating, the number of white volunteers is on the decline, and the Union Army needs all the help they can get in making inroads in southern territory. By the end of the war, some 179,000 men of color will have joined the Union Army. That's about 10% of the fighting force. But for now, it's a new and untested idea. South Carolina is one of the first places to see an all-black volunteer regiment form. The commanders in charge of these regiments, all white, all fierce, all radical abolitionists, know that a lot hangs on what they do next and how these newly minted soldiers perform. The entire country is watching. So they hatch a bold plan a daring raid that will take them deep into the heart of plantation country to strike, guerrilla warfare style, a blow that will sound throughout the South. But to make it work, they need help developing a strategy, and they need some good local intel. And for that, they need a spymaster. Someone smart, someone fierce, and someone who the locals will trust. And so, they ask Harriet Tubman to head up a spy ring. Get it, girl. 
This stretch of Carolina coast is all marsh-covered peninsulas and tributaries with long, winding rivers in between. These rivers snaking into the interior are the highways from the coast down to the rice plantations, ones that you need boats to get down. The Union Brass wants to sail troops down the Combe River, as they know there aren't any cannons along that particular stretch and only a very few guards to contend with. But they can't just pick up their rifles and march on in there. They have to know how to navigate, where to land, how to hide. Plus, the Confederates have laid mines in these rivers. Luckily, some of the enslaved men who laid them have escaped, and Harriet is quick to recruit them. She knows the importance of understanding your terrain, and these men know the rivers like the backs of their hands. But even with good intel, this is a wildly ambitious plan. On the night of June 1st, 1863, Harriet Tubman, Commander John Montgomery, her main spies, and some 300 mostly black soldiers sail silently up the Combe River in three boats, deep into the belly of the beast. The plan? To burn the plantations, liberate any enslaved people they find there, and try to get everyone out alive. Their hearts must be racing as they float through the tall grasses, praying that Harriet's intel about the mines holds true. There is no cover here, just fields and marsh grass. Harriet, as always, is steely calm. This fly-by-night, quick-as-a-snake-bite raid is just her style. At dawn, they land at the first plantation, rushing quiet and fast up to the house and barns, setting them ablaze. All is chaos. One of the plantation owners wakes up early, looks out his window, and sees black soldiers setting his house on fire, which for the soldiers must have been extremely satisfying. Everything is happening fast. Enslaved people in the fields, seeing the boats, come streaming toward the river, desperate to escape. Hundreds of them. I never saw such a sight. Sometimes the women would come with twins hanging around their necks. Till it appears I never saw so many twins in my life. Baskets on the shoulders, baskets on the heads, and young ones tagging along behind, all loaded. Pigs squealing, chickens screaming, young ones squealing. But some are cut off by Confederate guards and their dogs. Harriet watches, helpless, as her brethren are barred from the freedom of the boats. But they can't wait. Confederate fire is coming fast now. They sail away, having burned several plantations and hundreds of thousands of dollars in supplies, and having stolen hundreds of newly freed slaves. We weakened the rebels somewhat on the Combahee River by taking and bringing away 756 head of their most valuable livestock without the loss of a single life on our part. Though, we had good reasons to believe that a number of rebels bit the dust. Yes! This is, without doubt, Harriet's most successful liberation. The raid itself not only proves that black soldiers are capable, brave, and determined, but it strikes a very heavy blow that sends shockwaves through the South. No one, North or South, can say that soldiers of color aren't capable of changing history. And because of the part Harriet plays, she's been called the first woman in U.S. history to lead a covert military operation. And while she doesn't lead it on her own, she's instrumental in its success. Now everybody knows her name. Although, as any woman working for the Union will find out, Getting any payment for her work with the army is going to turn into a major headache. 
By the fall, Harriet is exhausted. She seeks and is granted leave to go home, which is now in Auburn, New York, where she owns a plot of land gifted to her by a friend and where she lives with her parents. Though she goes back down south before the war ends in 1865, she'll spend much of her time recovering her health after giving so much of herself. But on the way home, Harriet is roughed up by a train conductor as it passes through New Jersey. I mean, her papers must be forged, seeing as she's carrying a soldier's pass, and he knows no black woman could have come by those legally. He asks her to leave the train, and when she politely refuses, he resorts to violence. It takes four men to drag Harriet, war hero, liberator, Moses, out of her seat, dump her into a baggage car, and lock her in for the duration. This is her welcome home after the war, to be treated with suspicion and no dignity, harmed in ways that take months to recover from. It only reinforces her mission and makes it more important than ever to take care of her people in sickness and in health and make sure that they aren't forgotten. And in the wake of the Civil War, they're going to need all the support they can get. Meanwhile, things continue to be tumultuous in Washington, for everyone, including Lizzie. She devotes much of her time to Mary Lincoln, managing her many anxieties. Mary is sure that her husband won't win a second term, but Lizzie's confident, so much so that she asks if she can have the glove Abe's going to shake everyone's hand with. And she receives it, which hints at just how close Lizzie has become with the first family. She even accompanies them on a tour of the South three months after the inauguration, when the war officially comes to an end. They go all the way to Richmond, back through the fields and valleys of her Virginia childhood. Imagine returning there as a free woman, a successful woman who's best friends with the great emancipator's wife, a woman changed in so many ways. Alas, she wrote later, how many changes have taken place since my eyes had wandered over the classic fields of dear old Virginia? The war is over, Abe is president, and there's every reason for Lizzie to be hopeful. Although, as she points out in her memoir, people of color aren't allowed to attend the official party after Abe swearing in. Not even the distinguished Frederick Douglass, until someone tells Abe that he's waiting outside. A harbinger of things soon to come. On December 18, 1865, the 13th Amendment will finally be passed, officially abolishing slavery. It's the end of a long, terrible, oppressive era. But as Harriet discovered when she was thrown into that baggage car, there are sharks in these waters. And these waters are known as Reconstruction. Trouble, Lord, trouble. Trouble all about my There's a lot to be said about it, but let's sum things up a little. If you're a person of color, this is a very dark time indeed. In the South, you have a whole lot of recently liberated people with no jobs and very little support. And you have white families with ruined fortunes and a whole lot of anger. And who do they blame for their misfortunes? You guessed it. And with a government that seems more keen on mending fences than protecting people of color, soon you have a whole series of so-called black codes put in place in many southern states. 
legislation that strips black people of even the most basic of rights. In Mississippi, for instance, they can't have weapons. They can't congregate in large groups except to worship. They certainly can't marry a white person. Good luck reporting a crime against you to the local authorities. You're likely to be chased away by dogs. Here's a particular gem for you. Georgia's Apprentice Act states that any children of color whose parents are deemed negligent can be taken away and forced into an apprenticeship, unpaid, and then beaten if they aren't up to scratch. Some of them aren't even orphans. They're taken from families eager to keep them. Free labor, beatings, wait, isn't this slavery? Sure sounds a whole lot like it, doesn't it? The army is sent down south to try and keep things from getting out of hand, but their coverage is incomplete, and it doesn't seem to make all that much difference. A black woman can get on a train and sit in the ladies' car in Washington, only to be thrown out of said ladies' car when they get to Alexandria, Virginia, just over the Potomac River. Here are planted the seeds of the KKK, of the mass incarceration of people of color, of lynchings gone unpunished and Jim Crow. Freedom is good, but what happens when it comes with no protection, no support, and very little understanding? Despite this hellscape, many people stay right where they are, working for their old masters. It's all they know, and it's their home. But others leave for places unknown, despite their fears of the future. I must go, said one girl from South Carolina. If I stay here, I'll never know I'm free. But months before Reconstruction, on April 14, 1865, Abe Lincoln is assassinated at Ford's Theater. Who knows how different things might have been, or not been, had he lived. A horrified Lizzie rushes to Mary's side, one of her only companions, to try and comfort her. But Mary is inconsolable. I shall never forget the scene. The wails of a broken heart, the unearthly shrieks, the terrible convulsions, the wild tempestuous outbursts of grief from the soul. Though orders for new dresses are starting to pile up, Lizzie dedicates weeks to helping Mary pack up and leave the White House. But Mary has a major problem. Her relationship with emotional spending has left her with massive debts, and now that Abe is gone, she has no one to protect her from them. But Mary has an idea, and she needs Lizzie's help with it. Can't she come on up to New York and help her sell some of her old dresses? Mary will pay for her time, of course. Really. You know, once the money comes in. This is when I want to break the time traveler's code of conduct and shout, Don't do it, Lizzie! Keep building your business and let that crazy lady be! But Lizzie is attached to Mary, feels indebted to her husband, and wants to help her. So she puts her business on hold and meets Mary up in Chicago, to the hotel where Mary's staying. She finds that because she's gotten in late, and because she is a woman of color, they refuse to offer her a meal. But to her credit, Mary's having none of that. She says they're going out on the town to find some food, just the two of them. Girls' night! Which is kind of racy, given the whole Victorian thing about women never going out without a man. Surely! Mrs. Lincoln, you do not intend to go out on the street tonight. Yes, I do. Do you suppose I'm going to have you starve when we can find something to eat on every corner? It's a nice image, these two friends supporting each other, especially given the utter disaster that's about to go down. (laughs) 
Mary's plan is to sell a whole lot of her dresses, the beautiful pieces that Lizzie sewed for her. After all, she doesn't need them anymore. She'll be wearing black for the foreseeable future. Why not try to make some money from them? They try to do it quietly, privately, with clothing stores and private dealers, but no dice. So Mary hires two shady agents who decide to capitalize on her fame and sell them in a public auction, which is, without a doubt, a ginormous mistake. People come to see the dresses not to buy them, but to laugh at them. At Mary's childish fashion sense, the stains under the arms, you name it. It turns into a public spectacle and a scandal. How dare this former first lady have spent so lavishly while the country was at war, while millions of men were dying? The papers rip the thing to shreds, dubbing it the old clothes scandal. A scandal that Lizzie's reputation is also tarnished by. Because it fails so spectacularly, she has no money, only lost business to show for it. Mrs. Lincoln's venture proved so disastrous that she was unable to reward me for my services, she said, and I was compelled to take in sewing to pay for my daily bread. She applies and is granted a soldier's pension for her son's death, as he is no longer alive to support her, but it's barely enough to get by on. And so, broke and with a sinking business, Lizzie decides to write a memoir, both to defend her friend and to resuscitate her own career. In Behind the Scenes, or Thirty Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House, published in 1868, Lizzie writes about her childhood, her rise to fame in Washington, and her relationship with the Lincolns. Her intelligence, sensitivity, poise, and deep love of Mary Lincoln shine through on every page. It's beautiful to read, even in our century, which makes it all the worse that, when it's published, it is met with outrage, scorn, and condemnation. It's one thing for a woman to write a tell-all memoir, but for a black woman to write one, airing out the private business of prominent white people? Now that's just unacceptable. The haters come out in droves. It's too well written, they say. This Keckley woman probably didn't even write it. Roll out the racist red carpet, because here come some pretty horrific reviews. One New York journalist writes of it. Has the American public no word of protest against the assumption that its literary taste is of so low grade as to tolerate the backstairs gossip of Negro servant girls? That seems to have been the major issue the public had with it a woman of color having such a close relationship with a presidential family and then writing about it violates crucial social norms. In many people's eyes, she is the help, not an equal. What family of eminence that employs a Negro is safe from such a desecration? Someone even writes a very cringeworthy parody. Behind the seams by a n- woman who took in work from Mrs. Lincoln and Mrs. Davis. So stabworthy. I got in a lion it doesn't help that Lizzie's editor, who either convinces her to do it or does it without permission, includes several letters in the book between Mary and Lizzie. Mary takes it all as a major betrayal. Lizzie is sure she'll get over it. After all, Mary once called Lizzie her best living friend. She'll understand that Lizzie meant no harm by it, but she doesn't understand. These two friends will never speak again. The book is the final nail in the coffin of Lizzie's dressmaking business. She tries to revive it, but she knows it's useless. She has to take on small jobs and some teaching just to make ends meet. 
Later, in 1892, she takes on a teaching job at Wilberforce University, where her son attended, and becomes the head of the Department of Sewing and Domestic Arts. She trains a whole new generation of free women how to be damned good dressmakers, as her mother once taught her. But eventually her health takes a turn for the worse. Without a lot of money, and apparently without any support, she ends up back in Washington in the Home for Destitute Women and Children, a charity that, once upon a time, she helped to found. It's there in 1907, at the age of 89, that she passes away. I wish I could rewrite the end of her story, have her surrounded by loved ones, recognized for the incredible woman she was. At least now, in our century, we can hopefully start to see her amazing character clearly. This woman who was hit with so much adversity, but who somehow managed to hold on to the sense that she was worth so much more than what she'd been given. A woman who worked hard and achieved so much against all odds. As Reverend Dr. Francis Grimke said of her in his eulogy, she was a woman of remarkable energy and push. A woman who thoroughly respected herself. After the war, Harriet hangs up her guns and retires to a quieter life. Well, kind of. She goes around speaking about women's rights, for one thing, and tells stories both about her own life and about the war. In 1896, she'll be invited as a guest speaker at the first meeting of the National Association of Colored Women. It doesn't matter that she's illiterate, her stories are spellbinding. Suffragist Susan B. Anthony calls her a living legend. When asked whether women should have the right to vote, she said, with characteristic sass, I suffered enough to believe it. Speaking of legends, in 1880, Harriet marries again, a former soldier named Nelson Davis, who is some 20 years younger than she is. Get it, Harriet? They're married for some 20 years. But things are far from easy. For one, in 1867, she finds out that her ex-husband John Tubman was murdered by a white man, his young son the only witness to the crime. On top of that, an all-white jury finds the accused not guilty, an upsetting sign of the times, and one that would have hurt Harriet's heart, even if John Tubman was a little bit stab-worthy. Come to and also, Harriet is dead broke. She spent every cent she's ever made on other people, and though she owns land in New York, she doesn't have much to live on. She won't ask for help from her community in Auburn, of whom she is a beloved member, so they take turns leaving baskets of food and supplies on her doorstep. Her friends also throw their weight behind her pension application, which she puts in with the government for her wartime work. But in doing so, she runs into the same issues as many of the women who served as spies and nurses and soldiers. She doesn't have enough documentation to prove that she was ever there. What? Though her name appeared in the paper, and though there are officers who vouch for the work she did, her position was never really made official. Despite her fame and her friends in high places, it takes years and many petitions to get anything from them at all. In 1890, Congress passes a law providing for widows of war veterans to receive modest payments. 
Since by this time her husband has passed away, that's what she's finally granted. Not money for the work she did in her own right, mind you, but money for being someone's spouse. Classy. Though eventually the amount of that pension is bumped up in recognition of her extraordinary service. But no matter how little Harriet has to give, she's always giving it. She spends what money she has to open a home for those less fortunate. The Harriet Tubman home, which is still standing today. She never stops believing in the mission God gave her. I did not take up this work for my own benefit, but for those of my race who need help. The work is now well started, and I know God will raise up others to take care of the future. In 1913, at the age of 93, this great lady falls ill. She knows she's dying. As she lies in bed, surrounded by loved ones, she says, I go to prepare a place for you. In our century, she's almost a household name. Her face might even grace a future $20 bill, although America's orange-tinted president is currently saying he can't commit to it. In her own lifetime, Harriet was a contradiction, both well-loved and much-admired, and, by some, underappreciated. Frederick Douglass once said of her, God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witnesses of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. These two women lived very different lives and navigated the world in very different ways. But in their strengths, they shared much in common. Resilience, stubbornness, determination, a deep sense of self-worth. A desire to help those less fortunate, to raise up people of color and make their world better than the one that they were born into. Like all women of color in the 19th century, they were faced with a steep, treacherous climb. But they chose to climb it anyway, even when it seemed like the world was bent on dragging them down. They blazed a trail for the rest of us to follow. Until next time. Thanks for listening to The Explores. If you liked it, please tell everyone, your mom, your cousin, that lady in your Zumba class. Leave a review and spread the word on social media. It all helps get the podcast into people's ears. For a transcript of this episode, including lots of images and a list of books and other sources, go to my website, www.theexplorespodcast.com. That's also where you'll find a list of the excellent music used in today's episode. Most comes courtesy of the Smithsonian Folkways Collection, which you'll also find a link to. If you want more of the Explores, go to my website and become a patron. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll help me keep making the Explores and get access to hours of exclusive bonus episodes and all sorts of other goodies. Come see all the pictures I'm posting on Instagram and Facebook. You'll find me at The Explores Podcast on both platforms. I'm on Twitter at The Explores Pod. Much love to Paul Gablonski for my theme music and logo, and a huge thanks to Kemi Foster, who played Elizabeth, and Darlene Hope, who played Harriet. Such legends. 
And thanks to our other vocal all-stars, John Armstrong, Andrew Goldman, and Phil Chevalier.